Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Steve Moore, Manager of Scheduling and Innovation at Robbins and Morton. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be on. So, Steve, we got a couple of things I want to get into. Let's start with what you do at Robbins and Moore, and we'll get into the innovation, all of the things you're doing in innovation along the way. Let's start with with what you do. Perfect. So, I originally I spent my first decade of my career building power plants and focused on the project controls aspects of it. So the scheduling, planning, production controls, and tracking. Then when I moved over to hospital work with Robbins and Morton, it was a, quite a different arena. So I went from self-performing everything to now more managing subcontractors and watching how, how they work and their, their pace of work and, and all the risk being transferred over to, to our trade partners. And I started out here focused on schedule, but I really ended up following my, my passion more and more so of innovation, different ways of, of scheduling and planning. One of my big passions was 4D scheduling. So I, 4D scheduling really focuses on, on getting the schedule, tying it to a model. Because the schedule ties it to the model and allows you to see basically a time-lapse video of the future of your project, of how it's going to go together. You get to practice multiple times and, and strive over and over again to figure out the perfect plan before you get out there and actually perform it. And it allows you to avoid a lot of those obstacles and challenges. And that was a big success here at Robbins and Morton. It allowed us to, to really benefit a lot of projects. And uh, more, yeah, it sounds like what you, with 4D scheduling, some of what you're doing is almost simulating different ways of executing. Is that right? Exactly. Some projects end up being a jigsaw puzzle. You don't realize it's that there's problems or issues until yeah. you watch it multiple times and you see you're working yourself into a corner or you're working below or above something at the wrong times. But when you can all visualize it together, you get to rehearse it and basically build it virtually multiple times until you figure out the right sequence. And are the, the trade partners part of some of that simulation? Because I would imagine the, when parts don't fit, some of it is just, well, we can't do that before they've done that. Or, you know, they, they're going to need the... the like the electrical contractor might say, guys, we're going to need more room to install that, or we're going to need to... Exactly. You know, the complications That's been very like, helpful. I've yeah. gone into existing projects that already had their plans established, and I put the, the steel erector's sequence in exactly how they had it planned, and I put in the, the foundation work for exactly how it was planned. And then we were able to visually see you know, how those plans did not work uh, together and how we could make adjustments where everyone could have a more smooth workflow. That's great. How How hard was it to set that up? I mean, what tool chain do you use to do that? Is it just kind of Revit? And then I don't even know. What, what do you use to do that? So the most common tool today is still Synchro <laughs> Software. Uh, <laughs> recently got acquired by Bentley. I guess it's been a couple of years now. But there are many other pieces of software out there. There's about five or six good, solid 4D scheduling platforms on the market. If you're interested in finding out which, you know, which platforms are most useful or you're getting reviews on them, there's a, a group called the 4D Construction Group based out of Britain, but it's an international group that rates all the different software and also just helps people in general around the industry to get into 4D scheduling. Mm -hmm. I'm a member of that group and it's their website address is pretty simple. It's 4D.construction. And so do these typically, kind of back to my question a second ago about integrating with trade partners, is it sort of part and parcel of these software so solutions? that they have collaboration where you can go shoot something over to somebody and say, what do you think of this? Or do you tend to all gather around in a meeting and, and like, what's, how's the process tend to work? I hate to say that currently a lot of the software 
is uh, PC based or based, you know, on the computer rather than in the web. There's a couple platforms that are starting to to emerge that ability to at least view a 4D model online. I have the dream to to create a platform that allow average people, you know. Normally, right now, it takes a nerd with some really advanced skills to be able to build a 4D model. Yeah. And everyone just kind of gathers around the screen to review it with them. But I have the, the vision and dream to create a piece of software that allows just average people to create their own 4D models and even get to the foreman level with their look-ahead planning. Right. Able to create their own 4D sketches. And that's I think that's the biggest movement of software today is just making things more simple, streamlined, web-based, and user-friendly enough to where average people can get those results. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming some of why it's all PC-based is the size of the models and the files just get a little bit unwieldy. There is that, but uh, there are a couple platforms starting to emerge. I mean, there's Autodesk's solution, Bentley Solutions. They have the, you know, Forge and you know, different tools out there mm-hmm. um, that are starting to get larger models, more web-based. But I've come across a really powerful tool called uh, Z, Z-E-A, who's, we've been able to put in like models over four gigs in, in file size, you know, from Revit. And being able to to view those smoothly and seamlessly on an average computer through the web, it's getting there. The tools are there. Yeah. I um, just need to start putting them all together. Yeah, actually, there's another one called Vim AEC. I don't know if you're familiar with them, where they, they do this something, something like that, where they'll you can do amazing things with massive, massive files. So you're right. The tech is getting there. It's As ever, it's one part of the tech stack is doing something and the other part of the tech stack is doing something and having them, creating the bridge between them you know, it takes a minute. Yeah, that's something I'm really excited for. So one of the, so I like to build a lot of tools. So mm-hmm. I've built devices to help average people navigate 4D models. I had this physical controller called the Time Machine that I built and shipped a bunch of those around the world. But one tool that I'm currently working on now is called Concourse. Mm-hmm. And Concourse will be launching Procourse Marketplace. It's a way to view schedules with just two fingers. It uses an infinite Zoom platform. Basically, like think of Google Maps, but yeah. for schedules. Yeah, where you can see two fingers to see the entire schedule, and it also has a 4D element that's coming in the future. I haven't announced that yet, but we can we can kind of let that out here. Yeah, that it's going to allow you to combine that really powerful web-based 3D model engine yeah. with a really easy to use schedule engine. Navigating it all is just two fingers on any touch device or or any computer. That's cool. And, and if people want to go find this in, I think you said a week or two, um, and again, by the time this has been published, presumably it'll be up because it'll be a couple of weeks. Where, where, what should people look for? What is it, what is it named on the so Procore Marketplace? Uh, Concourse, and its landing page is located at concourse.tools. Concourse.tools. Very cool. So let's, uh, let's go back to scheduling as, it, as it's done now. You know, I love the fact that you're anchored in scheduling and you're constantly thinking of ways to build or innovate things that make it better. But let's start with how it's done now. You educated me on what CPM means, the critical path method. Tell me what that is first, because some listeners will know and some won't. But what does critical path method mean and and how does it work? In industry surveys, 99% of general contractors use it. Basically, it starts with a list of, of activities. Mm-hmm. Um, you determine the durations based on crew sizes and amount of work that needs to be accomplished. And you get this list and you link it together logically. So you can create relationships between these tasks saying, this one must finish before that one starts, or mm-hmm. this one must start plus a few days before this next one starts. And once you create this logical network, you can calculate that and determine 
and it'll, depending on those dependencies, shove all the tasks out to the to the earliest possible dates that they can occur in a kind of a big spider web, big sequence of tasks. And you can take that list of tasks and, and base your planning on it, figure out, okay, this is, if I get X and Y done, that means I can start on Z and it, it lays it all out for you in a timeline. And because you put the durations on there, it's going to you know give you dates to everything. And I can go off <laughs> quite a, quite a ways on this. Let's talk about how, you know, so one of the things that you, when we were discussing CPM is, and I think you're right, every, every construction management course is going to teach this. I, I took a couple, so I can vouch for the fact that it's, it, you're right, it's pretty standard. But there's some areas of how it really works that, you know, once people know it, you've realized there's, you know, there's things you can do to make it more realistic, or at least there's issues with how it's out of the box executed. What, what are those? What have you found CPM lacks that, that, you know, needs to be better. So there's a lot of ways that you can manipulate a CPM schedule. One problem is they've become a tool for litigation <laughs> and most construction projects finish significantly behind the, the original plan date. And this is often a big expense when the project goes longer than it should, but adds a lot of overhead, it adds a lot of overtime. It adds, there's a lot of a lot of huge expense and a lot of finger pointing that takes place. So people wield a, a CPM schedule as, as a tool for building the project on time, but also many people use it more so as a, as a means of defense uh, for when delays happen, they can, you know, use those to use it to prove those delays, but CPM schedules. So a lot of times they, they get armed with all these rules and regulations that go along with them. They can vary less about working together and collaborating and planning, but more about building something that the owner or the contractor can use as a defense when it comes to claims. And one thing CPM schedules do by default on, on every application out there is they'll 95% of applications out there. Don't want to get the backlash on that is they will plan to the early dates by default. Mm -hmm. So you'll look at the earliest possible dates. You think of a big spider web of dependencies and logic. Mm -hmm. One single task gets delayed. It'll have a ripple. Yeah. Um, very few tasks in the schedule will not create a ripple when they are delayed. And you think about, you know, probabilities, how likely is it that one of these tasks will get delayed? So think of going through an airport traveling. If one of your flights gets delayed, it may work out where it delays, you know, makes you miss your next flight, or it may cause one of the other hundred passengers on that plane to miss their next flight. Right. And so something's going to happen where it's going to delay those. In, in the airline world, they build contingency in these flights. They actually, the flight duration is mm -hmm. listed longer than the actual flight takes yeah. um, to add that cushion. And then there's also, you know, people build their own cushions in, in their layovers. But in CPM scheduling, we build zero cushion. We currently set it up so right the day that one task finishes, the next one starts. And if you add that cushion, owners will see that as, as a defensive mechanism that you're building some false cushion in there. So you're, you're hiding your delays or you're limiting your liability for delays. Uh, if you build too much contingency and don't have it kind of out in the open, mm -hmm. sometimes you can have that discussion and sit down and, and build that contingency together. Sometimes you have to house it in different ways, but basically I'm saying is with CPM scheduling, you set off a chain reaction. Anytime something gets delayed and talking about hundreds and sometimes often thousands of tasks. If one of the, I mean, the probability state that you're guaranteed that a really, really good number of those are going to be delayed. And so these dates shifting constantly, and then 
the plan currently being evolving to make up for those delays, to replan and to mitigate the, the consequences of those delays. That's just constantly reshaping and evolving and changing like crazy. Just imagine if the airline industry did the same thing where if they all of a sudden started changing their schedules around and moving flights earlier, and, you know, rather than rather than delaying them. What a, what a mess that could cause for people. I guess they do do that to some degree. No, but, but I think I think what one of the things the pandemic supply chain disruption has shown us is is when you have things really tightly tightly planned and tightly dependent on each other, disruption can really, really knock things back. And it's a little bit of a kind of a weird analogy, but I think it's one everyone's feeling right now, right? And I think is, isn't, you know, there was a book in the 90s, I want to say, called The Goal by a guy named Ellie Goldratt. And he had a whole story about, he had an analogy of if you tied together four people and had them walking, well, if you had four people walking up and down, you know, hiking basically, and, and if, they, if they were all independent, you more or less average because, you know, you can make up for delays that one did versus another and so on. But if you tie them all together, <clears throat> they wind up being the slow, the, the additive delays of everybody. Everybody slows everybody down and they never have a chance to really make it up. I think I'm probably butchering that analogy, but it's the point that you're making is it, it isn't like you average out the delays and, and it, you know, that's about how delayed we are. It's everything is additive. And then you add on to the fact that not everything can just be slid back by the same amount. Sometimes you have delivery schedules and, you know, availability and a hundred other things. So it not only is additive when these changes happen, but that it, it can be you know, I don't think it's ever exponential, but it, it can be nonlinear. It can be a little hard to predict the impact that delays are going to have. Um, the Goal is a great book. Like, I really enjoyed reading that. And it's a, it's a must read for any schedulers out there who haven't read it yet. Think of those, those four hikers all in a row. If one of those hikers is slow, mm -hmm. you know, the hike in general is going to finish late. It's going to finish slow. Mm -hmm. And chances are one of those hikers is going to be slow. And if it's different, with the, the point he also made, though, is it may not be the same person each time is it maybe somebody trips and they're slow for one part and then somebody else you know gets a blister and they're slow for another part but it all adds up as opposed to averaging out or being able to make up for each other which i thought a was of, a really interesting analogy a lot of variabilities in the process and you know really underscored for me the you know the the power of contingencies in the right places you know identifying bottlenecks but also in providing buffers i guess is he stated it. There's another book he put out subsequent to that book. Yeah. Um, that was more focused on manufacturing. The next one is called uh, Critical Chain, another revolutionary book. And this one, he actually does tie in construction examples, which is really cool. Um, I'd recommend that book as well for anyone interested. God, it's been so long. I forgot that he'd, he'd done that. I mean, I'd read, I read all of his, I think he had like three or four of them, right? You know, one of the interesting things that, that, that the goal and, and really other, you're seeing it pop up elsewhere as we talk about data and, you know, you're beginning to digitize and, or we're, along the path of digitizing is statistical control. And, and, you know, what you're hinting at when you say that, that, you know, it's, if you always assume it's the earliest possible date, but obviously there's variability. Well, that's, that's a statistical point, right? Is that there's variability. And if we're not at minimum centering on what the, what the plus minus is, you know, we're asking for trouble. How much in scheduling is the data available to say that statistically this sort of thing varies by 10 days or something like that? So historically in, in scheduling, we've uh, started to really take on the new theme of risk. Uh -huh. And there's a lot of diehard people that just go focus on risk management in the schedule. And a lot of times to them that translates as um, uncertainty and durations. 
mm-hmm. um, or other events that could really throw the schedule into chaos. And one tool that's been used for many years for that is uh, Monte Carlo analysis. Yeah. Basically, you, you state how uncertain you are of certain durations or how much they can vary. Do that. You can do it across. There's all sorts of tools out there for doing it. You can do it bulk for different areas of the schedule or get down to the specific line items. And it runs an analysis where it, it shows all the possibilities based on all the variables of if this duration is this and that duration is that. And it runs through all this, like thousands and thousands of scenarios and it graphs them. So you got to see like the, the project end date based on all these different, all these different scenarios. And you start to see a bell curve emerge and you realize, okay, the most duration for the project is going to be X. Mm-hmm. I love that you brought up Monte Carlo analysis. Let's spend a little bit of time on that, just a little bit more tactically. So, so what it, what it does, and you described it well, but for those who haven't dealt with Monte Carlo analysis before, it's really an exploration of every possible or as many as you can possible configuration of how the numbers would work out, right? Of how many, like if your inputs could be one to five and there's 400 inputs, it'll try all of those different variations to see where you net out. Is that right? Correct. And with Monte Carlo, one of the big complaints on it, it hasn't, you know, it's kind of feels like it's been fading out over time. People getting really into, into that type of analysis, because one of the big complaints is you can always get the results you're looking for. So you can change the variables, you can change your parameters. And a lot of times people have the answer in their minds before they even go through the analysis. And that's been one of the big, big complaints of it is all these numbers are subjective that go into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it will say what they believe the uncertainties to be, but something I feel that's that's really emerging now and the, the big desire and appetite of the industry is getting more into predictive analytics, where you base off your actual past performance for a similar task on a similar project. You think about, about Google Maps. That's something I'm just fascinated with is just how accurate it is. Just incredible. Just how, say you're going to go somewhere, it'll tell you like to the minute, this is a extremely accurate, at least with me, um, when I go places over great distances with so many variables, different stoplights, different traffic scenarios. And it just gets so accurate because it's gathering tons and tons of data from other drivers and other users and averaging that out, you know, between all the different stoplights you stop at and different lengths of time, it's able to, to figure out on average, it's going to take you this long for this stretch of road. And it, accumulates that and gathers it together. And we're trying to do the same thing with scheduling. There's tools that, that gather our past information from our past projects, but our information right now is not very uniform. We're not able to, to really establish, you know, a measured mile very clearly you know, for a particular type of work in a particular building in a particular area. For one, our work is not always repetitive and building the same thing over and over again. Right. Um, we do have so many different variables, but also we don't normalize our data. Yeah. Um, tag it the same, flag it the same. We don't, our naming convention and all those things are not, not standardized and not uniform. So it's very difficult to gather that data. And so a lot of the predictive analytics I'm seeing now is based on the project. It's within, within a certain project, it's taken us this long so far on this task. It just is really dumb and simple now where it just says, okay, it's taken this long. It should take us the same amount of pace, you know, to finish. And it gives us some predictions based on that. But we need to get to a place where we can gather more of that data in a normalized, uniform way where, where we can use it to that level that Google Maps uses it. Yeah, I think a couple things there. One of them is, I think, you know, the Monte Carlo criticism, you're, look, you're trying to do something different from predictive analytics, obviously, right? You're looking for areas where, man, we can't move that because look at the knock-on effects. 
like it's a, it, I've seen it used as, as sensitivity analysis to understand where your, where your key points are. You know, the idea that people are gaming it, that's going to be an issue with every data-driven tool, unless it's really coming from machines or, or you know, not every data-driven tool, but you can often play around a lot. But that's true with everything, right? You can, you can game things. You were just saying that owners are, are, you know, will sometimes criticize a contractor for trying to game the schedule. You bet. I'm sure people do. Of course they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, it's a big industry. Someone's doing everything. The, the second thing that's interesting about predictive analytics also is, you know, in machine learning, one of the things I've heard that I really like is the first decision you make when you're making a machine learning model is how accurate it needs to be. And that speaks to this a little bit is that, you know, you're, no matter what you're doing, every output of a predictive analytics process is a probability is I have 90% confidence that this is going to happen or the, the likelihood that this is going to happen is 95%. It's not really a confidence. Um, that's true here, right? Is that, that you're asking yourself, if, if this thing's telling me 80% that this is, this is likely to happen, is that helping me? And if the answer is yes, then great. I've got something, a tool I didn't have before. It's not, I think the problem sometimes comes when people hoped software will, will make decisions for them. And it's, it doesn't. I mean, no matter what, the best it is, is an input because there's only so much you can put into a software solution. Yep. There's always other factors you don't know about, other things that, you know, you, the client or the customer, or the owner, they're going to have demands that you're not going to put in the model. So I think that, that you know, it's an interesting thing. Your point about normalizing, of course, is, is, is huge. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you've seen that approached in scheduling? This, and, and first of all, let's define what you mean by normalizing. So by normalizing, getting standard task names, getting you know good naming conventions, figuring out, you know, the commodity loading will be really critical to this as well. Knowing you know standard commodities tied to these tasks, so that that information's in there of here's how much work occurred and possibly you know what part of the building or or structure, and you know and here's how many people were on it. Uh, the, Manpower loading, the crew loading is, is also a critical element as well to knowing uh, how much work it will take. We think about, you know, in the cost world, the cost tracking, we have, you know, means cost guides and different different books that keep track of, that really study, you know, like production of how, much, how many lineal feet of X can a worker put in per hour. We need to, you know, get down to where, where we have just measurable, simple, you know, this many people installing this many lineal feet of this activity. Clearly the find if we're on the next project, if you define it the same way, use the same terms, use the same resources, you start to draw some some usable data from that. Do you find that 4D scheduling helps with that because it's model-based? So you can you can quantify more easily what got done as opposed to the effort that went into it. One thing I love about 4D, it's like looking at the game footage. So you can actually grab you know past 4D models and compare them with future 4D models. Yeah and really see what people plan versus, you know, what we've actually been able to accomplish. And visually, our minds are able to take that in uh, so much easier. With 4D, my, my hopes on that, which they are starting to, starting to come to fruition, is that we can grab that, that model quantity data and automatically ingest that into the plan. So that data is there. Like with Synchro, for example, all that data is exposed mm -hmm. and you can utilize it, but it still takes a really really big computer nerd to be able to do something with it, to be able to, to make that work. But I do see the day where, and there are companies you know, like Alice Technologies and others that are working to 
you know, to automate that. So, so we were talking also about normalizing and, and using models as a way to have a, a common denominator, right? Like, like the, in the model, you know, you've got X feet of conduit or you've got X amount of concrete to pour and so on. I mean, the quantities aren't always in the model per se, but they're derivable from the model if they're not already there. You know what I mean? Like pounds yeah. of concrete might not be specified, but volume is, so you can, you can derive it. And this um, is really good subject. You're really causing me to turn some good gears here that yes, the model can be used to normalize the schedule. We can grab the, the data from the model and that's, that may be the, the normalized data is we have that, that data there available. We have the cubic yardage, we have the square footage, all of that tied to schedule activities. And we can make those correlations to say schedule activities that are tied to these model elements typically take this long to, to produce or typically have this much variability from project to project. I really like that idea. Yeah, I think it's fun. I, and what makes me think of it is some of these machine vision companies like Instruction Site and Open Space and Construe from Israel, where they're using machine vision to increasingly accurately survey what has been done. And, and they're really at the trade level, right? So they're, they're talking about concrete and they're talking about drywall and, and framing and so on. Um, and so you, you, know, you marry what the, and of course it's based on a model, like they're comparing it to what the model says needed to be done, presumably somehow tied to a schedule. So maybe 4D modeling is what they're based on as well. I honestly haven't had that conversation, but it'd be interesting to tie all that together, right? Is that you're not only able to quantify what, what got done or what, excuse me, what was planned to get done, but then you can actually match that against what was done and at a much more accurate level than someone walking around with a highlighter and a, and a schedule. And I'd like to add Bexel to that list as well. There's people that are working towards LiDAR-based solutions. There's ones based on using 360 photos. It's an exciting world to see this. It's a golden goose of project controls, is having the automated project controlling, but also being able to see if the installed items are installed in the correct locations to prevent rework and other issues moving forward. So there's a ton of potential there. And I see... I mean, the world in general is waking up to, to brighter machine vision and machine learning and AI that uh, enables self-driving cars and things along those lines. But construction can also be a big beneficiary of that, that type of machine vision. I love that. I, I got a question for you. As someone who has been, you know, practically doing this, like with real teams and real projects and so on, because the, the problem sometimes with abstract discussions about how software could do this and machine vision could do that is you know the outcome of what we just described is really tight descriptions of a schedule that leave out the fact that people trip or they show up a little late or you know what I mean like one of the things that I'm seeing across construction is there are areas where tolerances are getting super tight and sometimes that's you know and sometimes it it, it doesn't allow for variability that's that's not really under anyone's control it's just part of the fact that you're coordinating lots of people that are, you know, solving problems and sometimes they don't solve the problem quite as quickly or sometimes it's faster. I wonder how, you know, if the, if the schedule becomes really good and really predictive, you know, is there a moment where you say, well, we need to leave this much in there? Because you've, you know, you just said earlier or not, or just earlier in the conversation, we talked about if you give an owner, not everybody, but some, if you give an owner a schedule and you've left some space for natural variability, they want to squeeze it out. But if your predictive ability is so good that your tolerances are really tight, I wonder if that sets us up 
for a, the same problem, just now the numbers are tighter and smaller. You bring up a good point. I feel in, in any scenario, there's always the unknowns. You mentioned earlier that there are some many variables that do not get plugged into the equation that are difficult to map or to, you know, to put in any sort of machine learning application, exactly like the human variability. And I think the only way we're going to reduce that variability is by making the process more, our actual physical construction processes, which it's funny that it gets so little attention. We're so worried oftentimes about what goes on in the office mm -hmm. and we're still swinging the same hammers and using the same saws in the field and not, not improving those processes nearly as rapidly. But as soon as we get to the point where, where we have more consistency and more automation and more manufacturing type processes going on in the field where they're more predictable and more more repetitive that's when we'll start to see less and less variability this there's been the big movement to you know prefabrication mm -hmm. you know, off-site manufacturing and we see that it doesn't really save us money right now in most cases it's just a, a wash but we do see great schedule savings from being able to work tasks in parallel but we're also offloading some of the schedule risk as well. Right. And I think, I, I feel like that's actually, I've heard that before and I, I, it makes all the sense in the world that if all it does is offload or control schedule variability, that's huge. I mean, the, the, the monetary risk now is meaningfully reduced, which is worth, makes it worth doing. At least, I mean, it depend, I don't want to make a yeah. bl blanket statement. Sometimes yes, sometimes Time no. Is money. Yeah. And risk is money. Right, you're paying somebody to to help you manage risk one way or the other. So anything you can do to reduce that, it, you know, goes to the bottom line. It's somehow. Steve, I really love this. This is I, I feel like we could make this a three hour conversation, but I, I need to bring us into a landing. Thank you so much. I've learned a lot about this. I love that we got into Monte Carlo. I haven't heard that one in a while. Great conversation. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you.